the blessing of this moment continues to be a great one, doesn't it? The opportunity to come together, a time of tranquility, directness in relation to the Word of God. We're reminded, aren't we, in 1 Timothy 3, in the closing verse to that chapter, doesn't it remind us, Paul there commented, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There's something to be said for knowing how to behave ourselves that we, of course, take very seriously here at the Pippin Congregation. Learning how to behave ourselves, coming together to worship in the way that would please our Lord. And certainly we're delighted to be able to do that tonight. You notice on the wall where we've come, installment 12, the closing installment to our Minor Prophet series. We started this back in September. Doesn't that seem interesting how quickly the time has passed? We started this back at that time with the book of Hosea. Then we come tonight to the twelfth and final book of the Minor Prophets, which is also the last book of the Old Testament. Would you be turning to the book of Malachi? And so tonight, for the next few moments at least, we'll give some attention to that book that closes the Old Testament, closing the books of prophecy. And it probably has within it some matters you would expect. It has within it some matters you would quite frankly anticipate, I would think, and yet it's refreshing to find not only the greatness of them, but maybe even more expansive than you might have thought. In Revelation 19.10, we learn an interesting statement that connects to not only our study of the prophets, but it reads like this, Namely, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. May we never overlook the Old Testament prophetical books. There are 17 of them. And as we've, of course, given an emphasis... In the year 2022, we did a whole series on Isaiah, and now we've looked at each one of the minor prophets. You'll notice nextly on that slide, it has well been stated, and maybe it's worth restating, that if the spirit, if the encouragement, if the conviction, if the dedication of the prophets could be restored, how much greater would be the work of the kingdom of God in our modern day? These people, with the exception of Jonah, they were relentless, they were devoted, they were dedicated, they would proclaim and preach even when their life was threatened. That's how committed they were. And oh, how we have been the beneficiaries of what they preached and what they taught. The book of Malachi is another one of the post-exilic prophets. There's three of them. We learned about them being Haggai, Zechariah, and now Malachi. And as we close this particular book, as we close this section of the Old Testament, I might point out that there's some very unique features of the book of Malachi. It's almost evident upon reading it, but it's an almost argumentative structure. I'll try to point that out as we go through it tonight. The way in which it's done is a particular point is made and then a retort is made as if the person questions God's judgment. And then God quickly replies, laying to rest the argument that the person raised, and, of course, that proclaims that God was right all along. As you, look at, as you and I look at some of that, why don't we get started this way? As usual, it would do us well to at least note the historical setting of the book. Because, as always, what was initially written or spoken to that group of people was the message God intended them to hear. And you and I have been blessed, of course, these centuries later, to continue to appreciate the principles contained in it. It begins at the top of that slide this way. Malachi labored about a full century after the people had come back from Babylonian captivity. In other words, they had gone off to Babylon due to their sin. 
God turned them over to the enemy. And for 70 years, there's where they had been. And then they came back. Upon their return, they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. The first of those under the efforts of Ezra. The second under the efforts, of course, connected to Nehemiah. And now we're again about a hundred years after the return. May I point out to you this? The shape of the people is as bad, if not worse now, than it had been before they went to captivity. That's not a good thing to have to say, is it? God sent them into captivity due to their sin, and now they've come back, a hundred years has passed, and they're as bad now as they were then. But the things characteristic of their badness were different. You might ask, what were they? Back at that time, it was a lot of idolatry. They were turning their attention to idols. They were turning their attention, serving and worshiping various things made by human hands. That's not so much the problem now. The problem now was apathy, indifference. That sounds like a modern concern, doesn't it? Is that an issue troubling the church of Christ in our modern day? Has apathy reached too much of a consideration? Has indifference gotten to the point where folks just go through the habits of their worship and it doesn't really mean anything to them? That's the kind of people to whom Malachi was preaching. And no wonder this book will say a lot to you and me. It may well stomp all over our toes. But as it does so, it's a reminder that it's the Word of God, isn't it? You may notice about the middle of that opening slide, God sent the prophet Malachi to a people that were thinking that way to stir them up, to in fact fan the flames of enthusiasm and energy and consistency with respect to the Word of God. As this last book of the Old Testament comes, may I point out that it will so beautifully and so powerfully shine a spotlight to Jesus Christ. Now, he was going to be born in about 425 years from the time Malachi wrote. Four centuries were yet to pass, but we're getting closer and closer. And so Malachi will not only encourage them to be faithful because of the Christ that was going to come through them, but also to make sure that they formed a bedrock and a foundation for that developing work that would, of course, emanate in the work of Christ. That slide then closes by making this observation. As I mentioned, the format is going to be an intriguing one. It's unique. None of the other minor prophets use this format, this argumentative question-and-answer format. If you'd like to go ahead and get a taste of how that sounds, look at chapter number 1. In the book of Malachi, chapter 1, begin reading with me as I read verse number 6. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. And then I, being a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest, that despise my name. And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? You see the idea. God raised the point. A master, you see, should be honored by those who are his servants. And a father should be honored by those who are his children, and yet you haven't honored me. And yet you say, I'm your father, where's my honor? And you say, I'm your master, but you don't honor me. And then you'll notice that verse closes by saying, O priest that despise my name. And then they had the gall to say, how have we despised thy name? 
you begin to see the idea? God will make a point, and then they will question, well, how is that correct? And then God will answer, this is how you have failed to honor me. This is how you have failed to, in fact, respect my name. As we turn the slide to the next one, we'll develop then not only that consideration, but a number of concerns that are raised throughout the book. Let's highlight them one by one. The first one, in fact, is the opening five verses in chapter 1. They question the love of God. May I say that again? This people who had come out of captivity, and again were now a century back into their territory, they were asking, How do, are you sure God loves us? God, do you really love us? Here's exactly the way they stated it. Beginning in verse number 1, The burden of the word of the Lord to the Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? See their question? God declared He loved them, and they said, How have you loved us? Can you share with us exactly what it is you've done, whereby we may know that you have loved us? It goes on to read like this, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob? And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, wherein Edom saith, We are impoverished, and we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. God answers by saying, as you'll notice on that slide, you may recall Jacob had an older brother named Esau. And you and I remember much from the book of Genesis about the two of those brothers and the features characteristic of the fact that God selected Jacob to be the one through whom the blessing on the human family would come. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Esau was not the one selected, although he was the older. God uses that point here to say, I selected Jacob, I selected you people, the Israelites. And in that selection, I've blessed you. I showered my principles and my blessings upon you. And I gave you my word. Have you ever thought about the fact that at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were given the Ten Commandments and the other aspects of the law? It was not the children of Esau. They didn't receive it. Not only that. As God will later say in the book, He pointed out to them that in the blessing that was given to Esau, rather to, 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 to Jacob and to his descendants, you notice that's what's highlighted here. And that the Old Testament then also say the Edomites were destroyed. The book of Obadiah would tell us that. As you and I come to apply that lesson today, I hope that each of us will ever keep in mind the certainty, the fullness, and the absoluteness of the love of God. May we never doubt it. May we never question it. And if we ever begin to ponder it, think about the cross. Imagine on that cross was the one who was sinless and perfect, and He died for me. Had everybody else on earth been perfect, He still would have died for me and for you. We read in Romans 5, for instance, verses 6 and following, about the fact that for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
You and I were sinners. We were those who had chosen to violate the will of God. We chose to transgress. We chose it. It wasn't forced upon us. We willingly walked down a pathway of rebellion toward God, and yet Jesus died for you and me anyway. That's magnificent. It's amazing. I know that you and I have often been amazed, if I could use that word. There have been occasions in life when someone took death for someone else. You and I know those kind of stories exist. One that's probably one of the most well-known is in one of those concentration camps back in World War II. We all know the Jews were going to be slaughtered. There was an occasion when a Jew, he was going to be the one of those selected to be put to death, and another gentleman stood forth and said, I'll take his place. Kill me instead. And they did. That man gave his life for somebody else. Jesus did that for all of us. Woeful sinners, those who chose to be disobedient, and yet He paid the price for us. In Mark 10, 45, He gave His life a ransom for many. You'll notice on that slide that we have then many observations that close it. This idea, of course, challenges you and me to think much about the features characteristic of our, of, of our attitude and our consequent behavior. I've asked you to consider Psalm 37 as well as Psalm 73. You'll notice that one of the issues that was raised by the people of Israel, remember, they were questioning whether God loved them. Here's what they were thinking. They looked around to the Moabites, and they looked around to the Ammonites, and they looked around to the other peoples and said, well, they're doing just as well as I am. God, if you love me, why haven't you blessed me more than them? Why am I not wealthier? Why am I not healthier? Why are things not better for me than it is for them? I don't think you love me. You know, that's a common thought in our world today, isn't it? If God loves me, why don't He give me a bigger car? Why not a bigger house? Why not a promotion at work? You know, you can easily see that that kind of thinking will quickly doom one's faith. That's why Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 come into play. Those are some of the finest biblical presentations because there were those even in David's day wondering that. The wicked are prospering more than I am. God, how then can you say that you're with me? Those who don't ever go to church services, they have finer cars I do. They seem to be healthier than I am. Convince me, God, you love me. You see, that kind of thinking is dangerous. And that's why in those chapters we learn to think like this. The biblical writer says, I understood. I understood when I went into the sanctuary. Where are those people going to be in eternity if they don't repent? What's going to happen to them on the day of judgment if things don't change? That kind of perspective is what makes all the difference, isn't it? Whereas you and I look forward to an eternity in bliss and glory and joy and pleasantness by virtue of the promise of the Word of God, what do they have to look forward to? Now we hope that they'll repent. We hope that they'll understand and enjoy the blessing we have. 
But this is the message God had to share with the people of Malachi's day. Just because the Ammonites are doing as well as you are doesn't mean I don't love you. They're wicked. You have my word. You have the blessings connected to being a part of my people. My you and I as Christians never lose sight of that blessing. As you and I close that slide, it only leads us to the next concern. This one is shocking and it's disturbing. Among those discussions that God was going to have with them, they not only were questioning His love, they were also rather powerfully despising His name. Let's read some of the verses wherein that is made evident. I read verses 6 and 7. Let me read beginning in verse 8. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. There's our same structure. God said, You have profaned my name. And they said, How have we done that? They weren't willing to admit what they'd done. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? We each understand that God commanded through that old law of Moses there were sacrifices to be offered. Leviticus, in fact, details that in great order. Now notice what the people were doing. It came time for sacrifice, and they would sacrifice, but they'd go find the sickest lamb in the bunch, the one that they didn't want, and that's the one they'd offer. Or they'd go find the one that's blind, the one they didn't want, that's the one they'd offer God. And so God asked the question, try to offer that to the governor of your land, see if he'll be pleased with it. Do you think I'm going to be pleased with it, saith the Lord of hosts? You begin to notice religion had just become a habit. Go through the motions, I'll offer because God says to, but it didn't mean anything. They didn't offer from the heart. And for that reason, it was unacceptable. That's still true of our worship. May we never just go through the motions when 9.30 and 10.30 and 5.30 on Sunday roll around and when 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening rolls around. Our service to God must mean more than that. If it's just a habit, we need to have a heart check. And we need to change some things just like God told them through Malachi. This is not satisfactory. Look at the next verses. And now I pray you beseech God that He will be gracious unto you. You need to pray that He'll give you opportunity to change this kind of behavior. This hath been by your means. Will He regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there among, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. That's disturbing to hear God have to say that, isn't it? He says, I'm not going to accept what you're offering like this. I want you to give me your best because you want to serve me. Because you do it out of your love and respect for what I've done for you. Did you notice? They were even to the point where they would be happy if the doors of the temple were closed so they didn't have to go. That's how little it meant to them. May you and I never reach a point where we'd be just as happy staying at the house on Sunday morning or staying at the house on Sunday night. 
Does it bother us when maybe weather intervenes and we're not able to go on Sunday night due to inclement weather? I hope it does. We should look forward to the times of assembly. These people, you'll notice he now says this in verse number 12, But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it! And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? Isn't that a bothersome thing to hear them say? What a weariness is it! They were just tired of making the sacrifices. May you and I never grow weary of the services of the Lord. May they be as refreshing and as invigorating and as meaningful as they ever have been in our life. This is one of the things we learn from the days of Malachi, and isn't it a challenge? We live in a world that seemingly is so promoted to instant gratification, and yet you and I love these times wherein we can devote time to prayer and time to surrounding the table and time to singing songs. We don't speed up the song so that we can get it over with in 30 or 35 seconds. We want our leaders to lead us so that we can sing in spirit and truth. And we want to study the Word of God so that we're aware of what God wants. And we're thankful for the assemblies in which we can do all of these things. At this point, we've only looked somewhat at chapter 1. I wonder what's yet to come. Surely in the interest of our time, I've closed that slide by inviting you to notice some of the other ways in chapter 2 in which they had profaned the name of God are brought before us beginning in verse 11 of that chapter. I'll not read all of that, but may I point out a few of them? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange god. Judah, God's prized possession, those which of course worshiped at Jerusalem, she has dealt treacherously and she's committed an abomination. I suppose it is not that surprising. If one has little respect for the services of the church, this is going to be right behind it. You'll have very little respect for what God has to say. You'll be very quick to substitute whatever you want, Whatever you prefer, they go hand in hand. Little respect for the services, little respect for what God says, because He says the services are important, and He says the services are vital, and He says the services are essential. Therefore, may you and I take them together and appreciate that our respect for this will dictate how we look upon the services. For that reason, chapter 2 closes by again pointing out, you've committed abomination. You have substituted what I said for things that you want to be true. Let's transition to the next one. What else did God challenge these people on? Maybe it's not surprising. In light of these things we've already noted, He urged them, He encouraged them, He admonished them that they would return to Him. Look at Malachi 3 verse 7. In that particular verse, we notice the following. It is in a section of passages very intriguing. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. 
Return unto me, and I will return unto you. Isn't that a lovely expression? They had walked away from him, but he didn't give up on them. He wanted them back. That's true of you and me. If you and I, perhaps due to some poor choices, we may well behave in a way that's not good and not wise, and God continues to love us, desiring us to return to Him. I hope we'll all, in wisdom and in tenderness of heart, be ready to rush back to His side, just like is admonished in Malachi 3, verse number 7. However, it is true I didn't read all that verse, and the latter part of it is again a bit surprising. But ye said, wherein shall we return? So here's that argumentative way of doing things. God says, return to me, and they said, how do we do that? You and I know from the Word of God, thankfully God's very plain and clear how we return to Him if we go astray. We often call it that second law of pardon. We acknowledge those sins by virtue of confession and repentance. And we come back to Him. That's all He asks. You may be interested to know in the verses that follow, there are many things like that that are also voiced and stated here. I invite you to note verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? God said, you have had a lot to say against me. And they said, what have we said against you? And then he answers like this. You've said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have, that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. They again were saying, God, these people that don't serve you at all are doing as well off as I am. I want you to bless me more. You may notice as that chapter ends, and as these other chapters are shown, they're admonished to think differently than that. Our service to God is not based simply on the physical things that fill our life. Thankfully, God has so wonderfully blessed us with richness even beyond that. It might be fair to say as you close that particular slide, doesn't it challenge us in light of the spiritual blessings we enjoy? In Ephesians 1 verse 3, we're told that every spiritual blessing is in Christ. Every one of them. So any person who is not in Christ is woefully and sadly unable to enjoy any of those spiritual blessings because they're all found where that person is not. Are you and I thankful for the opportunity to call God Father? Are we thankful for the opportunity to assemble with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we thankful for the Christ who shed His blood for us? Are we thankful for the promises given to those who are His faithful children? Are we thankful for the avenue of prayer? That list could go on and on. But the point is, spiritual blessings, those people of Malachi's day were challenged and encouraged that they might have a different attitude. In the closing of that slide, there's a lovely scene in Revelation 2 that sounds rather reminiscent of this, where the church at Ephesus had themselves become unfaithful in some ways, and they were admonished, return to me. You and I know then that it's entirely possible to come back to God. If we falter, if we fail, if we slide asunder, we can come back to Him. 
Have you ever heard someone say, God can't forgive me for the things I've done? That's just not true. The blood of Christ is sufficient and adequate and capable of forgiveness of any sin that any human could ever have done so long as that person is willing to do what this book says, to have those sins forgiven. Therein lies the problem. Such a person as that may be unwilling to make the necessary changes called repentance that would be a part of coming to the Lord. But maybe all of that leads us in one final way to come to these two points. You may have wondered about that text in verse 8 of chapter 3. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. That same structure reappears. The question is asked, will a person rob God? God says, you have robbed me. And then they ask this question, wherein have we robbed thee? God, how have we robbed thee? I want to know, tell me. And he does. It's in that verse and the two that follow it. They had robbed God by withholding from Him the service He was rightfully due. Withholding from Him that which was the tithe that they should have offered. Withholding from Him the sacrifices and offerings that should rightfully have been made. In principle, doesn't that sound a bit like today? Can you and I rob God? Sure we can. If we withhold from Him that which He justly deserves in our service in that which we should devote to Him. It might be worthy then to notice, in the last chapter we have this amazing statement. You may have noticed that among all the verses in the book, all 55 of them, the one I selected for the lesson text came from chapter 4, verse 2, which may not be the most familiar verse in the book. When Brother Dennis read that a moment ago, it read like this. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. It's the word son that I would ask you to consider. You and I, as we often look at the Word of God and listen to the statements that are made in the Bible, the word son is not surprising. S-O-N. Jesus is the Son of God. He's also called the Son of Man. But that's not the word here. It's S-U-N, not S-O-N. Let me read it then with that thought in mind. But unto you that fear my name shall the S-U-N, Son of Righteousness, arise. I wonder who the Son of Righteousness is. No question. Who's the one that has healing in His wings? Didn't Jesus promise He would deliver the healing in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30? Didn't Jesus promise that He would make available the healing of the nations in Revelation 22, 3 and 4? This is a reference, and it's not really even a veiled one. It's a reference to the coming of the Christ, the Son, S-U-N, of God, that would provide the healing available to the human family, the forgiveness of sins, the one that would breach that division between God and man. No wonder as you think about the various ways that this book testifies to the Christ and testifies to the times of the Christ, I've selected a handful to close that slide before you. This book prophesied identically about John the Baptist. You and I know many verses that spoke about Jesus, 
But maybe you and I never forget, the Old Testament also prophesied of the forerunner of the Christ, the, John, the one we call John the Baptist. Look at Malachi 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger. There he is. That passage is quoted identically in the New Testament and applied to John the Baptist. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord before whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. John the Baptist came, and suddenly, six months later, the Lord came. What about the next prophecy? The one in chapter 4, verse 2 that you and I have just noted. The Son of Righteousness, that's Jesus. What about the next one, Malachi 4, verse 5? Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Here's a prophecy that Elijah was going to come. Let's not be confused. The man we read about is the prophet Elijah was long dead by the time this was written. We read about him back in 1 Kings chapters 16, 17, 18, 19. Well, how could this refer to Elijah? As you and I turn to the New Testament, we have no doubt wondering. In Luke chapter 1, verse number 17, we learn Elijah made a reference to the life and times of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus referred to this. And He made the appropriate application, you see. Interestingly enough, there's one final one. What about Malachi 3.16? Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon His name. A book of remembrance? What is that? You and I know it is the book of life. Referenced in many other places in the Bible. But here even Malachi referenced it. There is a book for those who fear the Lord and their names are in it. Is your name in that book? Is it continuing to be there as the days and the weeks and the months pass on? Are you and I living faithfully? It is true that once names are put in that book, they can be erased. We learn that in Revelation 3. Oh, I hope that you and I will never so conduct ourselves that our name might be erased from that book. As we close that particular slide and we close our lesson tonight, we have looked at the minor prophets, all 12 of them, in this series. And as we close Malachi, I think we'd all agree this book in some way summarizes all of them. They lift high the exaltation of Christ. They pointed to the reality of His coming and to the work and the character and the nature of His kingdom. And you and I are the blessed ones today that are a part of that kingdom. If there's anyone in this assembly tonight who maybe has been prompted by the minor prophets to rethink life, to rethink what's of highest priority, to rethink about service to the Lord, it'd be our desire to help and to assist and to encourage in whatever way we should do that. Our elders, myself, others of our congregation will be delighted to assist and encourage today if we could be of some assistance. At this moment, though, we offer the Lord's invitation. We do that as we're going to about to stand and sing. And in that time, if you would wish to respond, please don't consider it a time of being insulted. That's not the idea at all. It's a time of renewal a time of reinvigoration, a time of drawing near to the Lord. And if we could help do that tonight, it'd be our joy and delight to do that while together we stand and while we sing.